I'll be preaching primarily today from the passage from Corinthians, um, from uh, Colossians, and I wonder when you heard it read if you got maybe just a little bit nervous. Um, wives, submit to your husbands, this is fitting in the Lord. Oh no, where is this going? But it's not just women who sometimes get a little nervous wondering what's going to follow after that passage is read. This is a passage that can make just about everyone uncomfortable. Um, I wonder if you've ever wanted to push back at St. Paul a little bit to say, um, Paul, if you knew the kind of man my husband is, you would not ask me to submit to him. Or the husband who says, St. Paul, if you knew how demeaning my wife is to me, you would know how hard it is for me to love her. If you knew how ungodly my parents are, you would never ask me to submit to them. If you knew how unruly my children are, you would understand why I come down on them so hard. If you knew what an idiot my boss is, you would not ask me to respect his authority. And for those in a position of authority and power, if you knew the kind of people that work for me, how far below they are me in, in status, you'd understand why I feel okay about the way I treat them and how I pay them. Uh, the Apostle Paul makes us all uncomfortable in this passage. But his goal is to get us to think about our whole lives sandwiched between these two verses. From verse 16, just prior to this reading, whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And from verse 23, at the bottom, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. This passage has some simple instruction for us. It's practical, and if we take it to heart, we can make progress in the very things that we've been talking about in this work series. To break down that compartmentalization between work and home, between sacred and secular, between holy and unholy. It's possible that our most important relationships, which are which though our relationships are the most important aspect of our life's work. And then the things that we do with our hands can all be sanctified and made beautiful and useful to the Lord. Let me give you just a little bit of context. Uh, Paul is writing this epistle, most scholars think, between 20 and 30 years after the death and resurrection of Christ. This means he is not writing to a well-developed Christian civilization. He is writing to a group of people who live in a place where most people are not actually believers, where they face all kinds of opposition. Uh, many of those who would have heard this read in their churches would be married to unbelievers, uh, young people whose parents were not Christians, uh, middle-aged people who had grown children who were not Christians. Um, those, I really understand that. Um, I became a, a follower of Christ when I was about 15, and my parents, neither one of them, were believers. And uh, my dad was probably a little bit more um, out there uh, than my mother. 
Um, but he was this really inventive, creative person, and he loved to have an idea and bring it into reality. And one of his most um, ambitious uh, endeavors was to build a little greenhouse in our backyard. It was really cool. It came in these boxes, and he and his brothers assembled it. He added all these little neat tweaks on it, like when it got too hot, this thermostat would set off a fan, and it would blow the hot air out of the greenhouse. He had something where the, um, the heat of the dryer would blow up into the greenhouse in the, um, in the wintertime. However, his chief crop was marijuana. Presented a little bit of an ethical dilemma to me. I mean, it might be legal now in Denver to uh, grow marijuana, but it was not at that time. You know, I'm like in early years of high school, you know, getting these lectures on, you know, the gateway drug, and I'm like, my parent, my dad is cultivating this in the greenhouse at home. Um, he would even sometimes smoke it in, my, in their bedroom. You know, like this is what the teenagers are supposed to do, right? Go into the closet, shut the door, and smoke your marijuana and like wonder, oh, my parents will never notice, you know? No, it's my parents are in the basement smoking the marijuana, hoping the kids will not notice. <laughs> this was a very awkward situation. You know, how am I supposed to obey my parents in a situation like this? Uh, Paul gives us one little phrase that I think is very important. He says, as is fitting in the Lord. <laughs> and there's nothing automatic about this. This has to be discerned on a case-by-case -case basis. There are no little rules that if you follow, you can be guaranteed that you're following uh, Paul's examples. In order to live out the spirit of these verses, we have to think about our life and our relationships in brand new ways. The New Testament is written to people who are in many situations where the people that surround them do not share entirely the values of the kingdom of God. Uh, the New Testament is written to address this sense of tension and conflict. There were no options to work for a nonprofit organization that was doing good in the world and get paid for it or join a church staff. That wasn't an option. So Paul is speaking to us where many of us are really rubbing shoulders with people who are far from God. And the big question is, in, these, in this variety of situations, how do we keep our focus on Christ? Um, Paul says, do everything for Christ. How do we do that? How do we think of ourselves as living, as loving, as working for an audience of one? Ultimately, what we do is not for others, but for the Lord. Um, I, you, you may notice I actually have a ring on my right hand as well as my wedding rings on my left. And at some point in my marriage, I realized, you know what? I actually have to be reminded that first of all, I serve the Lord. And if I serve the Lord, if I put him first, I will love my husband in the way that I'm meant to. And he, likewise, will love me as he's meant to if he puts the Lord first. That's true in our relationships. It's also true in everything um, that we do. I want to propose that there are three areas I think that are most difficult for us to keep our focus on this audience of one. The first is the mundane and the boring. There is no way to escape from this. 
Even the super rich and wealthy have to brush their teeth every day, brush their hair every day, take showers every day. I hope put their dirty clothes in the laundry every day. There's no way you can never accumulate enough money to actually get past the reality of the mundane in our lives. We have to do laundry, dishes, my favorite, picking up the dog poop, um, answering email, sitting in unproductive meetings, endless stacks of paperwork, waiting on trains at stoplights in the doctor's office for a child to finish eating. Have you ever been at a child's, at a, a house with toddlers? The parents say, you may not leave the table until you finish everything. And the child is like, ha, 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 You're going to be here for hours. You are going to regret that you ever said that. Life is full of waiting. It's full of the mundane. And our challenge is to not get weary of these things. You're going to spend a lot of your life doing really mundane things. And if we think of that as all wasted time that we're trying to get through until we get to the real life, we will miss God's work and presence in our lives. Uh, one of my favorite um, devotional writers is Brother Lawrence. He wrote in the 17th century. He was a monk. And uh, I think he was maybe a little alarmed at how much manual labor was actually involved in being a monk. Um, even in the monastery, you cannot get away from the mundane. And he wrote, uh, we must not weary of doing little things for the love of God who regards not the greatness of the work, but the love with which it is performed. So that's our first challenge. How do we keep our focus on God in the mundane? The second are jobs that seem at first glance to be somewhat disconnected from the kingdom of God. Um, I'm part-time on staff here at Church of the Resurrection, but I am also a adjunct faculty member at College of DuPage, which is our local community college. And I teach um, a couple of courses in their religion department, which is kind of funny because I don't actually have a degree in religious studies, but they consider my degree in church history to be a degree in religious studies, which I didn't know. Who would think that your theological degree would possibly be of use in secular education, but it is. And I... Um, found myself in really kind of an interesting dilemma. You know, I love to teach the scripture. I love to um, teach um, Christians. And I found myself um, getting paid to teach people the four noble truths of Buddhism or the five pillars of Islam. You know, how do you, how do you reconcile that? You know, does this have any direct benefit to the kingdom of God? Um, wouldn't it be better if I could, like, graduate from teaching at community college and teach at Wheaton College? Wouldn't it be better if I was equipping brilliant, bright students who are paying an enormous amount of money? Um, <laughs> wouldn't it be better to be teaching there? Actually, no, this is a great opportunity. Uh, in most of my classes, I have probably half of them who are first or second generation Americans from all over the world. Uh, this semester I've been teaching online, and um, I've, I have this reputation. I don't know how it came to be, but Muslim students like me, so I always have a number of them in my classes. And um, 
if you've ever been to rateyourprofessor.com, it's kind of, it's kind of uh, embarrassing. But uh, one student at some point early on in my uh, uh, teaching career said, um, you should take Mrs. McIntyre's classes because she is nicer than your kindergarten teacher. <laughs> I don't know that that's really a good thing, okay? But it does mean that my classes are packed. They're always full. <laughs> and I do get a lot of... Um, requests for exceptions. Um, uh, a young man named Muhammad, I have talked with him on the phone like seven times in the last semester. He's the only student that calls me. He's called me seven times. He's trying to get into med school. And he really needed an A in my class. And he needed a little mercy in order to get that A. <laughs> it meant I might have to say, you know what, I know your paper is three days late, but you did a good job. I'm not going to penalize you for that. Um, it's very possible I'm the only Christian that he has conversations with. Um, this group of them together, um, I require them to do a religious visit, which means you actually have to watch religion being practiced. And I've seen some pretty cool things like Muslims visiting Willow Creek and encountering the presence of Jesus there. But this particular group, they've all known each other since high school. They pray together every Friday afternoon. They're pretty serious Sunni Muslims. And they were like, we do not go to other people's places of worship. You know, it is idolatry. We won't do it. And I'm like, you know what? If my Christian daughter was in your class and she said that, I would want you to respect that. <laughs> so um, how about you go visit the Shia Muslims? Well, they did. They all packed up together and went to visit the Shia mosque. And um, they came out of that saying, you know, more Muslims should do this because those Muslims are not as, those Shias are not as bad as we thought. Um, there might be more peace in the world if this kind of interchange happened. You know, there's a lot of Christians that get hurt in the crossfire between Sunnis and Shia. We have to be so open. Where would the Lord lead you? Would he lead you to some place where you can actually rub shoulders with those who don't know the Lord? You know, how do we open our eyes to see the possibilities that places where we think it's an obstacle to the gospel is actually an opportunity for the gospel? Um, Paul has a couple of really simple things to say to us. Uh, chapter 4, verse 2 his solution is continue steadfastly in prayer. Be watchful in it with thanksgiving. That's really simple, isn't it? To be prayerful so that you can be watchful and you can be thankful. Um, I want to suggest a couple of practical ways that you can do that, you, that you can put this to work. Because the idea is that we would take what we receive at the table of the Lord, this thanksgiving, and bring that attitude of thanksgiving into everyday life. Bring that Eucharistic orientation towards life to spread throughout everything. No little compartments for the Eucharistic life, but the whole life lived in that attitude of thanksgiving to God. Here's some practical things. First, I call these bookend prayers. You can do this even if you are a, a mother of a nursing baby and you do not have one single hour to yourself. Um, these are the prayers that you pray before you get out of bed in the morning, before you put your feet on the floor. 
Lord, I love you. I want to be aware of your presence in my life today. I want to do everything I do for your glory. Help me love you all day long. It takes about 30 seconds. And as you drift off to sleep, Lord, I give you the whole day, everything that's passed. Be with me in the night. Guide us waking, guard us sleeping, that awake we may watch with Christ and asleep we may rest in peace. There's lots of prayers in the common book of prayer to help you do that for bookend prayers. You can pray with your brothers and sisters, morning and evening prayer. These beginning and ending prayers help us to keep everything in the middle in focus that we do all uh, for the glory of God. Um, the second one is a principle that I've learned uh, just recently, and it makes this distinction between foreground prayer, that prayer which is in front of us, traditional, I've got my Bible, I've got my journal, whatever, and background prayer. Those kind of prayers that uh, kind of fill in the cracks during the day that invite the Lord's presence um, into our lives. And here, the mundane is actually your greatest opportunity for prayer. Um, I have a fantasy of like being a forest preserve worker so I could just like take care of plants and pray all day. I think that would be really awesome because the mundane offers tremendous opportunities for prayer. Um, the Friday night uh, pastorate, uh, the leaders there, uh, Alan Marta Sedano, um, he is a teacher. She has been a teacher. She's now at home with their kids. And they do some really simple, creative background prayers. Al, when he submits a grade through the computer, there's this little lag time where you're waiting for the computer to refresh. He prays for that student, gave the student a C, pray for the student. Marta, when she folds clothes, each child she remembers, she picks up those little socks, she prays for that child, she picks up uh, her husband's underwear, she prays for Al. Those little moments give us tremendous opportunities to bring background prayer into our lives. We have those moments of waiting. You know how easy it is to like pull out your phone and start playing solitaire or something, right? Those are opportunities. Those are moments to increase prayer in your life. You may think, I don't have time for prayer. Actually, if you started adding all those little things up, you might find that you have a great deal of time to pray throughout the course of the day. And it really is prayer that sanctifies things. Um, it's simple. You can't get away from it. And the goal of all of that is to be watchful and to be thankful. One of the reasons we don't value our daily work the way we need to is that we're looking for something big and dramatic when actually God is in the small things, in the details. But without prayer, our eyes are closed, we are blind, we don't see where he's at work. Uh, Proverbs 4 tells us, be attentive that you may gain insight. A prayer is not just asking God to do things. It's opening our hearts and our minds to think the way God thinks, to open our hearts to his presence, to the day-to-day -day tasks of life and work. It makes us become thankful, more docile, more movable by the Holy Spirit. And it, going back to Kevin's sermon, what is your great gladness? This is how you keep track of your great gladness. 
this kind of prayer interfused throughout all that we do opens us up to that awareness that God is at work in our lives. He's worked in us and through us. And finally, you have to find a buddy. Okay, I give you these great ideas, right? You're going to be like, I'm going to do it. Turn off the radio. I'm going to pray at the stoplights. I'm going to do it. You'll probably do it for one day, if you remember, one day, maybe two. But then you're going to forget. You just are. That's just the way it goes. We are so forgetful. But if you have a buddy to say, hey, how's your background prayer going this week? Oh, it was really good on Monday and Tuesday, and then mm, I fell off the wagon. You get right back on. Because we've been reminded again, because we've got some kind of buddy, a prayer buddy, a background prayer buddy, a spiritual companion, so that we can encourage one another and build one another up. We have to do it together. There's no way to sanctify our work unless we share our lives um, together. Uh, let's pray uh, from Psalm 90. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us. Lord, let your favor be upon us in our homes, in our relationships, when we are out and about, when we are at work. Let your favor rest upon our hands. Establish the work of our hands, O God. Establish it that your kingdom would come and your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. Amen.